Who knows what all he has coming down. Reptiles. <laughs> reptiles, yeah. You know I love me some reptile. Give me some good Gila monster. And... Uh, Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks Weekly Podcast. This is episode 52. I'm Brian Sheely. I'm Ryan Joy. And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. On today's episode, we're going to be in week seven, looking at Acts chapters 7 through 11, talking all about repentance and what it means to be a disciple. So this is going to be a good one this week. Yeah. This is a packed section of verses here as the church is really getting off the ground and moving out from Jerusalem into the outermost parts of the world, it's just, there's so much here and there's a lot to talk about. There is. It was insane trying to write 500 words about it to summarize it all for the end <laughs> of the book. <laughs> yeah, your job was not envied. And it's such a turning point. The, all of these chapters, every single one of these chapters is a huge, it's like you can see this giant steering wheel like the wheel of a ship turning mm -hmm. and the whole ship is slowly making its way to something totally different it was this jewish community and it's becoming something else yeah it's a big transition especially near the end of the week in chapter 11 but before we get into that let's look through this first segment and find jesus this week in acts chapter 7 through 11 where do you find Jesus? He does pop up a few times, but where are you finding him here? I find Jesus at the right hand of God. <laughs> That's a good place for him to be. That is where he seems to be. I've never actually seen him there, but I do <laughs> believe that someone did while standing here on this earth. We read in Acts 7 and verses 55 and 56, talking about Stephen right before everyone this mob stoned him. It says, but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. So this sermon that Stephen just offered started with the glory of God appearing to Abraham and it mm -hmm. ends with Stephen looking up into heaven and seeing the glory of God and Jesus himself is radiating and is right there at God's right hand. And then he takes us back to Daniel 7, the son of man who is before God and is God. And so just what an amazing thing to see as it seems like everything is falling apart, people are about to kill the first Christian martyr here in Stephen, but Jesus, the son of man, is still reigning. Things are going to be just fine for Stephen, and Stephen seems to know it. He he looks like an angel, and he's he's praying for their forgiveness, and he's about to go and be with the Lord, and God is even going to use this persecution that's going to break out. In the next chapter, as it starts, verses one through four, we're going to see people are going to scatter and preach the word all over. So God is going to make something good in every way out of what seems to be a horrible event because the son of man is still reigning. He is at the right hand of God and he is doing his work, growing his kingdom. I love the story of Stephen. And it, mm. it seems weird to say that because it's such a terrible story, but 
these events really do serve as the transition between the community of God's people in Jerusalem and the community of God's people throughout the whole world, which is what Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go out into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And that's what they're about to do, but they can't do that if they're stuck in Jerusalem. And this event, as we're going to see in Acts 8 and then in Acts chapter 11, near the end of the week, we see how transitional this event was and the courage that he has to stand up to these Jewish people who are disbelieving in Jesus and persecuting him for his faith. But all the great things, like you said, about what comes out of this is just why I love this story so much. Well, and his sermon is is really powerful, too. What a great yeah. history of Israel and the way he weaves in particular themes as he's trying to build to this crescendo. He weaves in how they've been rejecting here. God picked somebody. You rejected him. Oh, look, God picked somebody here. You rejected him. And he starts weaving this theme of the temple and the tent of meeting. And, Mm -hmm. you know, God actually doesn't live in houses made of of hands. And he's really building to something that challenges everything they they know and of course you said these jews are surrounding him which is true but these jews they're all jews stephen's a jew peter's a jew everybody's a jew and that's what begins to change is and you it was interesting too you said if they're stuck in jerusalem which was which is an interesting way to say it because they're stuck in jerusalem not because of anything bad they just want to be together and sometimes mm-hmm. good things keep us in a in a place that that isn't where we need to be you know we yeah. can be drawn we we love to be with christians who doesn't want to be with christians but sometimes we spend so much time together that we can't scatter and go into all the world preaching as we go as we read in acts 8 verse 4 that they they started to do so yeah it's it's really interesting how now they're going to go in chapter 8 to samaria and then on like you said from there in chapter 10 to cornelius and then to Antioch and and just building up from there outward and the first domino to fall is right here in mm-hmm. the the martyrdom of Stephen. Well, my verse comes from a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 9 and this is where we start to see this man who we were introduced to at the end of Acts chapter 7, the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we see this man named Saul who mm-hmm. is really on fire as a Jew for persecuting the church. Like, this is his main job, persecuting the church, (laughs) giving them a hard time, trying to put them into prison, bringing to Damascus these letters to carry them back to Jerusalem, all these people who were following, quote unquote, the way. Yeah. We see here the really famous passage where Jesus speaks to him on the road. But what I want to pick out from this is verse 13 of Acts chapter 9, when Jesus is having a conversation with this man named Ananias. He says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer 
for the sake of my name. Ouch. Ouch, right. (laughs) (laughs) You don't necessarily know from the context that this is Jesus, but as Ananias comes and meets Saul for the very first time, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So by Ananias' words later on, we see that this is Jesus speaking to both of them. It's just amazing to me that Jesus would personally step in and speak to Saul and personally step in and speak to Ananias, basically saying, look, I've got a job for Saul and I want him to do great things for me. And it's just one of these unique times that we see in the book of Acts where Jesus is intervening personally and uniquely on behalf of a single person. And what would have motivated the Lord to call Saul? On whose radar screen was Saul the ideal candidate for doing these amazing things for the Lord? Nobody thought that Paul would have ever been the kind of person who could have been changed so completely. But Jesus did. Jesus saw it, yeah. Yeah, And that, I think, is just the amazing thing about the perspective we have when we look to the Lord. It's not about what we think on the surface or somebody's backstory. If you look at Saul's backstory, by all accounts, any of us would have said, nope, he's not a candidate for being a Christian. He is not a candidate for being a disciple of the Lord. But we have no idea what the Lord's plans are. And I think that's just the big lesson here for me, that you just don't know what the Lord has in store for people. And Ananias kind of brings up all of Saul's past indiscretions and all of his problems that he's had as if the Lord didn't know, but he did know, and he still wanted Saul to get to work. And he wanted Ananias to go to him and teach to him about Jesus. And you know who else wouldn't have believed it had it not happened <laughs> is Saul, <laughs> you know, and and Saul says, Paul later says, there's only one reason that Jesus would choose me to show grace to in this way. It's to show everyone that Christ came into the world to save sinners of mm-hmm. whom I am foremost. Yeah. I receive mercy for this reason so that you might be able to see his perfect patience. Yeah. And we all have hard hard time, I think, or many of us, I know I do, sometimes seeing what Christ sees in us, <laughs> like what we could be useful for. We might have difficulty embracing the work that God has for us as his priests, as his representatives, his ambassadors into the world. But he has he has work for us and we are his saints. Yeah. And we're we're not we're not done. Paul wasn't ready to be everything he would be or to do everything he would do as soon as he was converted, but it's a great example for us how Jesus can see our potential and he's willing to come and save sinners like us. All right. So let's get into our second segment, and that is scripture du jour. What is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm. That sounds good. I'll have that. So we are in Acts chapter 10 here on Thursday in our week seven reading. This is, again, probably one of the most important stick a flag in it kind of chapters in the book of Acts that you could find. And I'm really glad that we landed on this one for our scripture du jour this week. So what do you get from Acts chapter 10 that really just stands out at you in this story about a man named Cornelius? 
I'm struck by this picture that Peter sees coming down in his vision. It starts out that he's hungry and he has this vision of a sheet coming down and I can just see it so clearly Mm -hmm. all of the kosher, all of the not kosher foods that he has coming down, all the foods I love to eat, right? (laughs) There's, there's there's pork, you know, there's lobster, there's all these different kinds of food probably, who knows what all he has coming down. Reptiles. (laughs) Reptiles, yeah. You know, I love me some reptile. Give me some good Gila monster. And uh, <laughs> and he sees all of these creatures coming down and God says, arise and eat. And Peter argues with him, right? Yep. Natural reaction. No way. I don't do that. This must be a test. Yeah. Imagine if you were told to do something that you've been told all your life is sin mm-hmm. and a vision tells you to do it. But the verse I wanted to grab onto is this this verse in verse 15 where God explains to him with one almost a proverbial statement, this declaration that I think is about more than the kosher food, as he'll learn. Mm-hmm. It says, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. <laughs> and I realized he wasn't talking about pigs. He was talking about me. He was talking about how, you know, I couldn't have walked beyond the court of the Gentiles in Herod's temple that Peter could have gone and visited in that town that he was in, in in Jerusalem, that is. I couldn't have sat down to eat with Peter because I am not of God's people. I, I would not have been one of the Jews that would have been considered clean. Yeah. He says in verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. That's him telling basically the backstory of, of why he shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. So this is, this is a powerful verse because it, it's really uh, about how God has broken down walls He's opened up that temple Mm -hmm. and said, not only can I go in to draw near to him, but even crazier, he has made me an unclean Gentile into a holy temple for him. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's amazing to me how Peter walks away from this vision, probably like I would have totally confused (laughs) verse 17 while peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean behold two men shows up who were sent by cornelius so yeah i mean he has no idea and then all of a sudden the the puzzle pieces start clicking into place and he finally starts figuring out oh yeah that must be what this is all about yeah yeah walking by faith tends to require a little bit of willingness to walk around being perplexed to to embrace a little bit of mystery and try to keep searching and keep trying to understand it's a little different for us since we have all of these books but it still takes a willingness to to accept some things that are hard to understand and and keep seeking and keep thinking about them and it seems like Peter is perplexed from the time Jesus <laughs> ascends into heaven there's just a constant trying to figure out what is next. What is the Lord doing? Yeah. So mine comes a little bit later here and speaking a little bit more specifically about Cornelius, which he was a centurion of the Italian cohort, 
a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. That's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. Mm -hmm. So Cornelius is a really upstanding guy, even though he's a Gentile. And it's not to knock Cornelius, he just was not a Jew. I mean, plain and simple. But he is willing. He's a seeker. He's looking for something. And he's Mm -hmm. praying to God, and God comes to him first. I love that that happens in this story. God doesn't come to Peter first. God comes to Cornelius first and Mm -hmm. tells him, you need to go find a man named Simon, who is called Peter, and go get him and have him talk to you about some things. Then he goes to Peter, and all the events unfold with his servants and bringing Peter in. But when Cornelius first meets Peter, he does something really interesting that I, I love to think about here in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. We see this kind of reaction a couple of times in the book of Acts, Mm -hmm. at least here and then with Paul and Barnabas as people are worshiping them as gods and honoring them and falling down at their feet. This is something that happens frequently. It's interesting to me Peter's reaction, because it's the exact right reaction that he should have. Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. It's just a small little interaction here in the story. The greater story that we always think about here in this chapter is how Cornelius believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of them, and then they were baptized after Peter basically said, We have no other option here, guys. We have to baptize these people because that's just what needs to happen. (laughs) We think about that story a lot, but this little interaction here between these two men, I think is super interesting that Peter is not about to be worshipped here. And I think that's just a, a mark of the apostles. That's a mark of any of the disciples. Really, this is not about you. This is not about me. This is not about my work. Peter is nobody special. Paul is nobody special. But at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus, and he's the one who we should be focused on. But so often, I think, in our religious world, in our society that we live in, we like to lift people up onto pedestals, and we like to elevate men and make men feel more important than they really are. And if you ever find yourself in that position where somebody is lifting you up and honoring you, you need to have the same reaction that Peter does. Get up. I'm a man just like you. It reminds me of the time in Revelation 22 and verse Mm -hmm. 9 where John falls down and worships an angel that's revealing things to him. And he says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. Worship God. And that's, that's why as we were going through Luke and different times when we've talked about Jesus having people bow down to him in the Gospels, I have tried to point out how striking it is that Jesus would accept that worship, that he wouldn't yell at people. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal because the only person you bow down to, the only person you worship is God. And, And Jesus, of course, is God. Yeah, I think that's a really great distinction here because nobody who ever has anybody bow down and worship them who has any sense about them lets that happen for very long. And that's, that's just not something that we should let fly. But like you said, as, as people were worshiping Jesus, that was the correct response. And that's the only correct response. We should only be worshiping Jesus, not men 
even apostles who had the Holy Spirit, who were blessed with these miraculous gifts and all the things that they had and that they could do, that doesn't matter. And someday every knee will bow before Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Not before man. <laughs> all right, so let's get into our third and final segment, and that is heavy words. Whoa, this is heavy. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? So there's a lot of repeating words that happen here in these five chapters that we're reading this week in Acts chapters 7 through 11. A couple of those words, though, are pretty important. Yeah. So we're going to look at two of those in this section, and those are the words repent and the word disciple. So kick this thing off and tell us what this word repent is all about, because we only see it two times in these verses, but the idea is definitely all throughout these verses. Yeah, and we've seen it a lot already in the book of Acts, in mm -hmm. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Acts chapter 3, repent, and, and times of refreshing are going to come. We've, we've seen whenever people are told what to do to convert, this is one of the major ideas that's, that's brought up along with, we keep seeing baptism brought up, but and, and faith, of course. But repenting is this critical theme. And it just means, this word metanoia, it just means change your thinking. It's not, in Greek, necessarily a religious word. Repent in our language, in, in English, we automatically have religious undertones in that word. But it's just this word meaning to radically change your thinking is what that Greek word means. Mm -hmm. And N.T. Wright, I've heard bring up this passage in Josephus that I found interesting where Josephus uses this word, this Greek word, to talk about people should repent and change their thinking basically to think like me. He wanted people to give up their their crazy dreams of a nationalist revolution, give up their agendas and trust my agenda, trust what I'm trying to tell you. And that's that's a pretty good way of summarizing what Jesus is saying to do. Give up your agendas and trust my agenda, trust mm -hmm. my thoughts, give up your way of thinking and throw in with me. And that's really the core idea here. And and it's it's just this switch in our minds, in our thinking, really in our will, I guess, would be the more more accurate way to say that and our confidence and our trust and what where are we going to put it so what do you when you think about repentance what insight or what idea comes to your mind it is hard not to go to acts chapter 9 as saul is turning to the lord for the first time and if you had to pick out anyone who really repented in a serious way it was probably somebody like saul mm -hmm. his transformation was 180 degrees in the other direction. It was completely, not just in what he did, but in his mindset. His whole purpose changed from being against Jesus and being for Jesus. So if, if his agenda, like you talked about, was putting people in prison because of their faith in Christ, his new agenda was now building up the Church of Christ in a way that nobody really had ever done before like he was about to do. Mm -hmm. If you look at anybody really in the history of the early church who was working as actively as they could, it was probably somebody like Paul. The fact that nobody believed this was possible in Acts chapter 9 
How much skepticism that Saul was facing from the people, from Ananias in the beginning, from Mm -hmm. the disciples who would hear him right off the bat in the synagogue, proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. And then as he goes back to Jerusalem, nobody wanted to believe that he had really changed. Wasn't this the guy? Yeah. Not very long ago was getting ready to put us all in prison. And now he's on our side. It's a great point that everyone had a hard time buying into this repentance of Paul because it doesn't seem like these kinds of things actually happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like anyone ever actually radically changes their thinking. It's so rare. It's like a minor miracle when someone actually (laughs) repents, right? When someone actually radically changes their thinking. That's what repentance is. And and so it's maybe the hardest thing to do in all the Bible and maybe the most important. I think that's part of why evangelism is so hard, because we have a hard time believing that anyone could radically change their thinking. Yeah, I think that's a big piece here that I get from Acts 9 is how the people eventually moved beyond skepticism because they did. Yeah. They had a choice. They could either remain skeptical and hold Saul's past over his head, or they could move past it, look beyond all the things that they knew about him and see his works, see his faith and his fruits, and really just listen to the corroborating evidence of people like Barnabas who stood up for him. Change is always possible. Repentance is always possible. Nobody is too far gone. It really is the whole ball game. Mm-hmm. It is possible. It happened to you. Yeah. It happens to you more than once. It's happened to me many, many times. It will need to happen again to me where I will need to come face to face with something I don't want to see about myself, about the truth, about something I need to change, maybe that I didn't even realize And it's going to be hard, and yet I can change my thinking. I can change. And I think repentance is all tied up in a few different things. You mentioned some of them, and it's important to kind of unpack it into the individual parts. You know, like sometimes we think of repentance as the sadness, the feeling sorry for what we have done, and, and that is inseparable from repentance, but it is not repentance. Mm -hmm. So 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. And then sometimes we think of it as changing the actions, like you were talking about the fruit of Paul's changes that give evidence that he has actually changed his thinking. He's not just a secret agent of the the rulers amongst them trying to find out where they're hiding or something. Mm-hmm. He really has changed. And that is... It's called in Matthew 3, 8, fruit meat for repentance. Your life has changed in a way that fits repentance. Yeah. And and so that those changes in our lifestyle are not repentance. But if there is no change, then you haven't really repented. There's there's going to be some change. It's not doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. But whenever you change your heart, you change your attitude, you radically change your thinking. You give up your agenda and trust Jesus for his, then you are going to start to see that fruit in your life. And I I love the way that Jesus 
talks about, he doesn't use the word, but I always think of repentance in the way Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son when he says he came to himself mm-hmm. and he decided to think a different way. And he, he kind of came to the realization, I need to change my thinking about this. And then from that comes those changes in our lives. From our reading this week in Acts chapter 8, we see a picture of a man named Simon, who is a magician. Yeah. yeah. And eventually, after hearing the preaching of Philip, he decides that he wants to become a believer and he's baptized. But then, not very long after that, he's out there trying to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit from the apostles. <laughs> Peter has to tell him, basically, knock it off. <laughs> you are wicked. Your heart is not right before God. And then in verse 22, he says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And I think that's what you're saying. I think that's exactly what you're bringing up here. Repentance is about the intent of our heart. It's about what our goal, what our motivation really is. And I don't think that Simon, the magician, really repented when he turned to the Lord because he was full of pride and boastfulness and all kinds of things before he came to Jesus. He was being praised by everyone for how amazing he was and all of his magic, and they were amazed by him. And he turns to Christ in faith, but he continues doing exactly the same thing that he was doing before, trying to be great in people's eyes and trying to be outstanding and amazing before people until Peter has to basically tell him, look, your heart is not right. You've got a heart problem. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Your heart is not right before God. That was the critical thing that needed to change. And yeah, maybe maybe he didn't repent or maybe he did repent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, none of us are all the way there. We're all going to probably fall again and fall into old traps and old problems. Old habits die hard. Old habits die hard. And <laughs> it's going to be a lot of, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. And whenever th- this is a really great instance for us to understand that even though back in the earlier part of the verses, back in verse 13, Simon himself believed, it said, and mm-hmm. that's n- that's a critical part of conversion. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. But yeah, he he sins against God by trying to buy something that is not for sale because, as you say, he has a wrong heart. And so what do we do whenever we are baptized and we've repented of our sins, but we fall into sin again? Yeah. Well, we need to repent and ask God to forgive us. I think that's an important part about what you brought up is that repentance is not a one-time thing. Yeah. It's ongoing. It's something that we continually do. And if we have the presence of mind to realize that we need to do that, then as we see here in the story, we'll be forgiven if repentance is true, if we're real about what what our change of mind is. And he begs Peter, please pray for me that none of these things would actually happen like you've said. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think this is a really big factor here in the beginnings of the church as people start to turn to the Lord. That's the the shift in mindset that needs to happen. Absolutely. So as we continue this, though, the other word that keeps popping up here a lot in these chapters is the word disciple. And we see this word about 10 times here in these five chapters that we've read this week. And this is a super important word because it's a descriptor of who we are today and who these people were back then. 
It's this word, matheteus. It means one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil or an apprentice. So it's basically like a student. And these people were students. All of these people were students. They were all apprentices. They were learning instruction through Jesus. They were following Jesus, disciples of Jesus. And as we're going to see a little bit later in Acts chapter 11, in Antioch, the very first time that people were called Christians were there. But all the rest of the time, up until that moment, they're all called disciples. So what do you get seeing this word pop up here so frequently in this book? Well, clearly, this is the preferred way of describing a follower of Christ, a a Christian. We only find the word Christian a few times in the Bible, but we find disciple all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say anything bad about the word Christian. That's an important word, too. But disciple describes something about our way of life, about who we are. And I think my favorite verse about what it means to be a disciple is in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, where Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And it's interesting because Jesus isn't describing what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He's describing what it means to be a disciple of anyone. Yeah, we see disciples of John, too, pop up in the book of Luke. Sure, yeah. Every rabbi had disciples in Jewish culture and Greek culture. There were people that followed around philosophers and teachers in in a similar way. But to be a disciple, you said a pupil or an apprentice engaging in learning. And a disciple would follow his master wherever he went. Mm -hmm. The disciple would see where his master sat down, what his master's eating, how his master's eating, and just imitate whatever the master, whatever the teacher's doing. He's imitating him, he's spending time with him, and he's learning from them. It's not just like we would think of a teacher today or a college professor or something like that. This is a much more intimate connection between a disciple and his teacher. You are with him. A big part of it is time with them all the time together in relationship with them. And it's a special kind of relationship. It's not buddies, but it's very close. But there's there's this authority, the seniority of the master. And so the point is our goal, um, whenever he is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. Our goal is to do what Jesus does. If Jesus was in your life, what would he be doing? To think the way Jesus thinks. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking in any situation, how would Jesus think about this? Disciple see, disciple do. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) It's a good point. We have to watch Jesus. We have to know Jesus. We have to think about him. That's why our reading plan keeps coming back each quarter to Jesus. That concept was really popularized years ago with this whole what would Jesus do kind of bracelet movement and everything that happened there. You can tell we're kids of, you know, (laughs) the 90s coming up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You remember Pogs? (laughs) Of course. I lived in Hawaii when Pogs were big. Oh, man. That's where that started. (laughs) But the whole idea there was really this this same concept, maybe marketed a little bit differently, but it's all about discipleship. It's all about looking at Jesus, watching Jesus, following Jesus. And whatever he does, that's what we do. And that's the constant question that we have. How would Jesus handle this situation? How would I react to this situation if Jesus was here with me? For sure. I love from this word that there's a certain 
humility that's implied. And I think it kind of goes back to my thought about Cornelius worshiping Peter. There's just no opportunity for us as disciples to be the top, to be the most important. Mm -hmm. We're all followers, every single one of us. We're, We're not the teacher. We're not the master. It reminds me of Darth Vader. When I left you, I was but a learner. Now I am the master. <laughs> Can you, can't you say that with the voice? Come on, man. Let's hear some James Earl Jones. <laughs> but I think that our goal a lot of times is to eventually, look, if you were an apprentice in anything, what uh-huh. would your goal eventually be? To become the master, right? That's what right. you naturally want to have as the end goal of being an apprentice. Nobody wants to be an electrician's apprentice for the rest of their lives. They mm. want to eventually become the electrician. They want to eventually become the one who's in charge. But that's the difference with our discipleship. We don't ever want to be in charge. We're mm-hmm. not looking for the position of authority or power. We are only, like Jesus said, and like you talked about in Luke 6, we are only going to be like the teacher. We will never be the teacher. And so that's a little bit of a difference, I think, in this word, is that when we think about Jesus, we're never going to get to the point where we are more important than the master. The master is never leaving, and we are always under the master as his disciples. And so that puts us in community with each other. None of us are better than each other. None of us have more authority necessarily than each other. We're all in this together, and none of us are the head. We're all playing out a certain function in the body, but Jesus is always the head. And that's something just to remember as we think about being disciples here. It's really interesting, and it makes me think of something I think we talked about a while back, but how Jesus himself didn't act like he was the source of everything, even though he's God himself. Well, he was always pointing back to God the Father. Yeah. We read, I think, at one point back in Isaiah 50 and verse 4, this prophecy about Jesus that says, the Lord has given me the tongue of the disciple or the Mm -hmm. tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain him with a word who is weary, morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This is about Jesus. Jesus had the tongue of someone who's taught, of a disciple, mm-hmm. and he, because he submitted himself completely to God's will and to God's instruction, the Father's instruction, he was able to teach us to have a disciple's heart, a disciple's ear, to have open ears to him and to start thinking as someone who is instructable, who is meek, who is a good follower. And so that's kind of cool to think of, yeah, we'll never be the master, but the master himself was the disciple in a way, the ultimate disciple. At the end of the day, Jesus was not some authoritarian figure who was going around beating people into submission, he was showing us exactly what real discipleship looks like Mm. by being obedient to his father. And if there's anyone that we should be willing to learn what true discipleship is like, it's from the one who shows us that in a perfect way. Yeah, I think we've found this week's big idea right there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get into the challenge for this week It's going to be a little bit unrelated to some of the things that we talked about, but as you've been reading this week in these sections, you've seen in Acts 8 how Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch connect with each other, in Acts 9 how Ananias and Saul connect with each other, and then 
In Acts chapter 11, we get to this picture of Antioch and how there were many people from Cyprus and the surrounding areas who came and they were preaching there to the Hellenists and and other people, converting them and teaching them the gospel. The challenge this week really is along those lines and is to connect with someone who might be seeking the Lord. We're looking for seekers. We're looking for people who really are thinking about spiritual things, who want to know more. And don't write people off in thinking about who might be a good opportunity to speak to, because certainly Ananias could have written Saul off, but he didn't. And if there's somebody who you've been wondering, should I talk to this person? Don't think that they're too far gone to actually talk to them about the Lord this week. Amen. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the Bible Geeks podcast. You can find us on our website at BibleGeeks.fm. You can find show notes for this episode at BibleGeeks.fm slash 52. You can also access our daily downloads by going to BibleGeeks.fm slash daily. If you want to send us a question or something you'd like to talk about, find us on social media or send us an email through our contact link on the website. We'd love to get in touch from you and talk about anything that you've got on your mind in the coming weeks. Until the next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.